Uh, what's up? Am I putting off practicing to make this right now? Yes. Am I also putting off a shower to do this right now? Yeah. Did I have to turn off my humidifier and my air purifier to do this? No, but I care about you and, and your quality of life. So I, I've turned them off, and I'm now sitting in my almost silent apartment. I did just go use the washroom, so if you hear my toilet refilling itself, there, there's nothing that I'm going to do about that. Hi there! My name is George. It's very nice to meet you. This is the first episode of whatever the hell this is. It's called Stupid Pianist, both because I am a pianist and I'm a little bit of an idiot. But, nevertheless, I'm still going to talk at you for about half an hour. Could be 45 minutes, could be an hour, could be 20 minutes. I don't know. Anything could happen. I might just get tired and want to lie down or something. I don't even have a microphone stand. How do I... It's very uncomfortable to hold. I don't even have like a like a good microphone that I'm using. I'm using right now a USB condenser microphone by Bayer Dynamic, and it's, it's quite good, but it doesn't even have gain control. I didn't want to spend money on like, you know, an audio interface, an XLR cable, a mic stand, an actual nice condenser microphone, maybe even a tube mic. Ooh, we getting chocolatey. Uh, no. <laughs> this is already completely off the rails. So what is this podcast? This was an idea that I made to myself. Uh, that was a horribly formulated sentence. This was an idea that came to me around the turn of the new year in January 2021, when I was like, I've got enough free time. I shouldn't use it by watching random tech-related videos on YouTube. I might learn some people on some stuff. Or I, I might just enjoy talking at myself for an hour. And if other people want to join in on that festivity, so be it. I didn't even prepare any water. The fuck am I doing? This is a nightmare. How do people do this? All right, okay. I have to get an introduction to the podcast now within the first, like, what, three minutes? This is a podcast where I'm going to be talking about basically music history with a specific emphasis on piano because I'm a pianist and obviously I don't know anything about any other instrument because pianists are very self-centered and they don't know anything about orchestral music, about operatic music, about any of that nonsense. So I'm going to be talking to you bi-weekly, probably, depending on my motivational levels, about whatever musical topic that I choose. Could be on performance practices, could be on a specific composer, uh, could be rants about, I don't know, the time that I uh, played an audition and my hands were so shaky from nervousness that I completely screwed up the first bar. And from then on out, it was a completely unmitigated disaster. Not a fun time for me, not a fun time for the people giving the audition. I still cringe to my core while thinking about it. Why am I making myself think about it right now? I don't know. I feel like now is when I should put intro music. People have intro music for podcasts, right? Yeah, okay, I'll put it in here, I guess. That was the Festin de Soap. The last etude from the etude in all minor keys by Charles Valentin Alcon. Listen here. You listen here and you listen good. We're going to be talking about Alcon, but not in this here episode. I don't know why I chose the Alcon. 
for, for this episode. But look here. You look me in the eye. You look at me while I'm talking to you. We're going to talk about clicky clicky. See, I have notes. I know what I'm doing. We're going to talk about one of my favorite composers and one who is honestly ridiculously overlooked. I know this is a phrase that I probably throw out a lot, especially because I like to play repertoire from pianists who are less known. But this guy really was, you know, special in his heyday. His name was Sigismund Thalberg. I don't know if it's pronounced Thalberg or Talberg, but I'm going to pronounce it Thalberg. And if I'm incorrect, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. There will be no repercussions, neither serious ones nor minor ones for that discretion. All right, focus, George, focus. So Sigismund Thalberg was alive at the same time as Franz Liszt and was performing in Paris at the same time as him during the huge boom of uh, piano virtuosos in the 19th century. So, of course, when we're talking about the history of piano technique and piano music, um, the main ones, if we're going to grossly oversimplify it, I mean, like, we have pre-Baroque music, we have Renaissance music, uh, stuff like that. I'm not going to touch on that right now. Then we had the Baroque period with Bach uh, being, you know, the biggest household name from that. Then we had the classical period. Mozart would be the biggest name for that. So I don't know. I, I don't want to play musical examples. Look it up yourself. I'm too lazy. Um, I really should have decided to do this next to a piano, shouldn't I? I don't think my USB cable reaches that far. <laughs> well, I can play the bass notes. Right, and then from the classical period, the romantic period started. And it was in this period that piano technique really took off. Uh, previously, what was considered virtuosic, from a purely mechanical and technical point of view in more contemporary times, those highly technical runs in a Mozart sonata, let's say, are, are no longer seen as the technical marvels that at the time they were considered. I mean, I'm not saying by any means that Mozart is an easier composer to play than Liszt. Absolutely not. No, no. And I don't think that you can really hierarchically rank composers in terms of how easily you can play their pieces versus how difficult the pieces are. If a piece has a technical difficulty, that doesn't necessarily mean that musically it's very complex to express the core of it. Nevertheless, or, or all that to say, the technical innovations that took place in the 19th century, specifically in the cultural hub of Paris, are still techniques that to this day, contemporary pianists find difficult to master. In that, unless you're a complete prodigy, which is a topic that of course we're gonna talk about on another podcast, unless you're a complete prodigy or somebody with a, a lot of ostensibly innate skills at the keyboard, you're not going to find a six-year-old who's capable of, well, let's say, even reaching the chords that are written in Rachmaninoff pieces or Liszt pieces. But you will find people in that age range being able to play every single Mozart work quite well. I mean, at least from the perspective of they're able to hit the correct notes with correct rhythm in the correct order. So this is where we find ourselves now. It's, it's the mid-1830s. We're in Paris. I don't really know how else to connote the environment. You can just Google Paris 1830s or Paris 19th century or something. And big man List is currently running the show. You know, he's like the greatest pianist ever, obviously. He's playing tons of concerts. He's 
you know, when when he walks into the hall, he flings open the hall doors open, and then he strides in the in the uh, alley in the in the audience. You know, he like takes off his gloves and he throws them into the crowd. People fight over that. People were even fighting over locks of his hair. People were collecting butts of his cigars that he flicked onto the streets and preserving them and selling them. And women were fainting at in these concerts uh, such that they were even declared like a public health risk. This listomania thing uh, later turned out that uh, very likely that list paid people to pretend to faint. But I mean, that's not unheard of of happening. I mean, like when Michael Jackson was in his prime, people were fainting at his concerts. So whatever, I'll give list the benefit of the doubt. A good old list. But this podcast isn't about list. It's about Thalberg. So list is in Geneva. We're not going to go into why List is in Geneva, not Paris right now. It's also because I completely forget why List is in Geneva. But he's with Geneva. with the, He's in Geneva with his wife and his kids. And he starts hearing news about this kid named Sigismund, which is a really weird name. I don't know. I never got used to it. It, it has like a Slytherin-y vibe, but I don't know if it's just the consonants of the S sounds. It's just, a, it's just a, it's a name that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. You hear Sigismund and you immediately are like, I don't trust that guy. So he, he, he starts hearing news about this guy named Thalberg who showed up in Paris and is playing at a level that people are directly comparing the two of them. So this is a little annoying for, for a variety of factors. I mean, like it's very often that lesser known composers get grouped into better known composers or lesser known performers with better known performers. I mean, like Alcon is known in relation to Chopin and Liszt and Metner is known with relationship to Rachmaninoff. And now Thalberg is always and continuously, nearly ubiquitously mentioned with reference to Franz Liszt, probably because they had a fierce rivalry. But we also have to recognize many, many differences between these two people. Thalberg was primarily a pianist and a composer second, whereas Liszt was much more focused as a composer. In fact, in Thalberg's life, he stopped composing relatively early and he retired also relatively early. And then he just lived a quiet life with his riches and his family, whereas Liszt was composing all the way through his entire life, even after he stopped his uh, concertizing career. So Liszt starts to hear news about Thalberg. And the news is not pretty because Thalberg is literally lighting up the scene in ways that only Liszt did before, which is why it's even more surprising that nobody knows Thalberg in this day and age, because at the time there was probably not a singular musical correspondence talking about piano that did not feature Thalberg's name. It's almost impossible to recognize the kind of celebrity that both Liszt and Thalberg shared. And it also speaks to the fact that Thalberg was undeniably an amazing pianist because Liszt in his writings never once wrote that he thought that Thalberg was the worst pianist, only that he thought Thalberg's compositions were bad. Which is a hotly contested opinion, and I really disagree with it. Marc-Andre Hamlin actually released a recording, I think it was late in 2020 or early 2020. No, it must have been late 2020, which kind of pissed me off because it was, a, it was, a, it was an album dedicated to Thalberg and to Liszt. And I was like, but I'm the only pianist who plays Thalberg. Little George, whom nobody knows at all. I'm the only one who's going to expose Thalberg to the world. Fuck, I'm so stupid. All the time being stupid is so fucking hard. It's like, duh. Um, never mind. All that to say that uh, when Hamlin released this album, of course, he did some uh, press interviews and he wrote that he was initially very intrigued by Thalberg's music, but that the more and more he explored it, the less and less value that he found in it. 
And I was like, what are you talking about? Have you um, so many, I would say the majority of lists transcriptions are horrific. He could have really, really, really used an editor or at least a group of people that weren't just yes men being like, list, you probably shouldn't publish this. Like the range of his compositional ability stretches from like astounding one of the best composers ever to like, what the fuck are you doing, man? <laughs> are you listening to what you're writing down? Are you thinking critically about what you're doing? This doesn't sound good. Whereas Thalberg, even though he produced less material, it seems in my mind to be very consistent. So I'm going to share two passages right now. Uh, they're both from uh, fantasies or transcriptions of operas. Franz Liszt's is from uh, the Bellini reminiscences of Norma, and Sigismund Thalberg's is from Rossini's Moses. And these passages, I'm going to play first Liszt's passage and then Thalberg's passage. So I'm going to pause now, and then I'm going to edit it in. <laughs> and through the power of mouse clicking, it's going to be seamless, or it would have been seamless if I didn't keep talking for 30 seconds. All right. <laughs> oh, this is a nightmare. <laughs> That was that was that was me playing lists one and now here's the excerpt from Thalberg Sorry for the uh, audio quality of those two recordings. They were not done under the best circumstances, but I, I work with what I've got. I'm broke. If you want to throw some money at me, please do so. Wasn't that an eerie experience? Wasn't that just the biggest copy-paste job that you've ever heard in your life? If you could see the musical scores, which I'm looking at right now, you'll see even like further of just how ridiculous it is. Uh, Thalberg's composition predates lists by a number of years. And this is actually one of the cruxes of arguments that are anti-Thalberg. 
Because in that excerpt, it, it sort of sounds like there are three hands playing. You have one hand that's doing all these ridiculous arpeggios up and down. Then you have another hand that's playing, you know, the bass and some harmony. And then in the middle of all of this, you have this, this eerie melody that seems to float out of nowhere. And initially, people didn't know what to make of this. In fact, there's, there's many stories of people making bets of, hey, guess how many pianists are playing right now? And it'll be at a Thalberg concert. And so friends will gather at the door, they'll listen, and obviously they'll be like, oh, there's two pianists playing. And then they'll be like, ha ha, it's just Thalberg. So Thalberg was the originator of this three-hand technique, and it was literally just called the three-hand technique. And Liszt fucking hated this. He wrote something like, um, uh, how can we say that Thalberg invented anything new, or let alone a new school of piano playing? The school of arpeggios and thumb melodies? And, and like, uh, to say that is preposterous. But it is indeed true that this is this was a new technique at the keyboard that nobody had ever experimented with prior. Nobody had ever experimented with textures of this kind prior. And this was one of the reasons why Thalberg also had his fair share of huge fans at the period. I mean, uh, Hector Berlioz wrote, quote, Marshallist, Kalkbrenner, Chopin, Liszt, and Hertz are and will always be for me great artists, but Thalberg is the creator of a new art which I do not know how to compare to anything that existed before him. Thalberg is not only the premier pianist of the world, he is also an extremely distinguished composer. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty high praise from, from a pretty high person. Mendelssohn was also a fan of his. Mendelssohn wrote, or a student of Mendelssohn's wrote that Mendelssohn and Thalberg met, and Thalberg played him his newest transcription on, on which opera was this? I forget. But it was it was another revolutionary technique at the time, which was the technique of uh, connected chromatic octaves. So, you know, left hand plays uh, two Cs, right hand plays two C sharps above it, then left hand plays two Ds, then right hand plays two E flats, then left hand plays two Es, then right hand plays two Fs. I could keep going forever, but you get the pattern. And... Mendelssohn evidently hadn't heard this before, and then the next day the student shows up again to Mendelssohn's house, presumably for a lesson or something, and he hears Mendelssohn practicing this chromatic octave technique. And the student comes in and Mendelssohn goes, hey, look, doesn't this sound just like Thalberg? And he also had, uh, you know, at times fans from the two Schumanns, Robert and Clara, although with many of his compositions, Robert also wrote pretty derisive opinion pieces on them. But, I mean, with other ones, he really greatly enjoyed them. Uh, Chopin, he had not an acrimonious relationship with, but not not the best one either. Like Chopin wrote uh, that Thalberg plays splendidly, but he's, quote, not my man. He's younger than I and pleases the ladies, makes potpourri on la mouette, produces his piano and forte with the pedal, not the hand, takes tenths as I do octaves and wears diamond shirt studs. Yeah, and Chopin, meanwhile, just coughed gently on the piano keys and, and held one concert every 10 years. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I, I don't want to make fun of Chopin. I'm sorry. It's just low-hanging fruit. What do you want me to do? I'm going to drink some water. Hold on. Mm. Amazing. And then there's a story of Thalberg who attended one of the concerts that Chopin gave. And after the concert, he's walking with a friend and Thalberg just starts singing really loudly. And his friend's like, Thalberg, what the hell are you doing? And Thalberg was like, uh, all I heard tonight was piano. So I just wanted to hear a little forte. Um, I'm sorry about that. It wasn't even my joke. Um, yeah, so here's a little note on Thalberg and Mendelssohn. Uh, this is from one of Mendelssohn's students. Quote, we were a trio, and after dinner, Mendelssohn asked Thalberg if he had written anything new, whereupon Thalberg sat down to sat down to the piano and played his fantasia from the Sonambula. That's what it is. That's one of my favorite ones by him. And I completely forgot about it. 
evidently, I don't know as much as I thought. Uh, Continuing the quotation, at the close, there are several runs of chromatic octaves, which at the time had not previously heard, and of which peculiar passages Thalberg was undoubtedly the inventor. Mendelssohn was much struck with the novel effect produced and greatly admired its ingenuity. He told me to be with him the next afternoon at two o'clock. When I arrived at his study door, I heard him playing to himself and practicing continually this passage which which had so struck him the previous day. I waited for at least half an hour listening in wonderment to the facility with which he applied his own thoughts to the cleverness of Thalberg's mechanism, then went into the room. He laughed and said, listen to this. Is it not almost like Thalberg? Um, I, I guess I didn't have to read that note because I, I basically just paraphrased that story. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, we also see then, I mean, like Mendelssohn also experimented himself a lot with this three-hand effect in, I guess, uh, his prelude in E minor, some songs without words, definitely. Um, Chopin also tried to, I think, experimented with it. You can make the argument it's 18 in E minor, opus 25, number five, uh, experiments with it. Um, his etude in A flat major, opus 25, number one plays around with it but you could you could also i guess just to circle back to the original technique with list um you you could make the argument that it's it's not that big of a technical innovation and it is true that when you make your way through Thalberg's compositional output that there are quite a few instances in which he plays around with this effect i mean at towards uh, the height of his career he even earned the nickname like grandpa three hands or something like that I don't know if it's grandpa three hands or it's like old, old, old man three hands or something like that. Yeah, so he does use it quite a bit, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily an easy technique to replicate. I mean, if you want to break it down in really technical terms, uh, then you can say that there is an arpeggiated layer that's played with the right hand. Then there is a harmonic layer featuring bass strikes every quarter note or at the start of every measure with the left hand. And then the thumbs in each hand alternatively switch off on playing the melody, which is relegated to the center of the keyboard, which is the most sonorous part of the keyboard. So so it really plays to the keyboard's strength, and it, it really makes it look like Thalberg knew what he was doing as, as a composer. I mean, of course, melodies do sound great in the treble register of the piano. You can make still make them sing out, but I'm sure pianos at the time, it would have sounded much more significantly different if the melody was put in the middle register of the piano as opposed to the upper register of the piano. I don't know. Find someone who knows more about pianos of that period. I feel like I feel like that's accurate though. You know? Is what I'm saying making any sense? All right. So so Thalberg list yada 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 yada. Uh they were rivals. He had many people that liked him. He had many people that didn't like him. Nevertheless, he was seen as to many a pianist equal to list and skill. So, interesting thing happened. On the 31st of March, 1837, I think it was like the princess at the time, but she arranged this concert to raise money for Italian refugees. Good job, princess. Uh, Don't know anything else about your personal life, but I'm like, nice. Thumbs up. And Thalberg and Liszt were to play in this concert as a piano duel. Side note, we need to bring these back. Uh, There was one competition that I did not participate in that had like a knockout style bracket. Instead of like ranking numerically the pianists, on a 100-point scale or something like that. It was like a boxing event where you played against another pianist and whoever the judges liked more would move on to the next stage. And like, don't, please don't come at me with, I don't know, your issues against this. It sounds fun as hell. 
and I want that to happen. Also, piano duels sound fun as hell. Why don't we have this anymore? There should be like piano duel competitions. That would be fucking amazing. That'd be so entertaining for pianists and for audience members alike. Okay, but yes, Liszt and Thalberg both agreed to play at this benefit concert in a piano duel. They also agreed to the programs that they would stick to. So Liszt and Thalberg contacted each other and they agreed, okay, these are the pieces that we want on the program. But then each of them in secret behind each other's backs wrote a final piece to conclude the program. And Thalberg's was that Moses fantasy that you heard with that amazing three-hand passage that concludes the work. Um, and after the, after the, uh, the benefit concert happens, after the piano duel happens, the princess reported. I, there are two main translations of this quotation and none of them make much sense in English. So I really need to find somebody that speaks the language and have them accurately translated into the English vernacular. But the princess said either like uh, uh, Thalberg is the finest pianist on the planet, Liszt is the first, or like Thalberg plays marvelously, but Liszt is the only pianist. I mean, <laughs> and I guess I sort of see what she's going for, but like, come on. Like, there must be a better way to translate the sentence in, in such a way that it makes more sense to English speakers. Or I can just get fluence in a second language and not ask that everything needs to be translated into English. My French is getting better, you know. I, I, I think I'm at, like, a B1 for French, maybe B2 for listening comprehension. I mean, my Mandarin's still shit, though, but whatever, whatever. Then there's also Thalberg's personality, where, where he seems by all accounts to be like the polar opposite of Liszt. I know that I said that I didn't like when composers that were less well-known were just relegated to being paired with a better-known composer, but I've just spent like 23 minutes talking about Thalberg almost exclusively in relation to Liszt. <laughs> this will be the last thing about Liszt that I'll say, okay? I promise. Liszt is known for when he's performing at the keyboard, you know, his wild theatrics. He had long hair that flowed over his face. He uh, often broke strings of the piano, which another side note is not difficult to do. If you're not a pianist, pianos at the time, the strings broke much, much, much more easily than pianists of today. And the only thing that made them break was that you just hit the keys hard enough or not hard enough. Sorry. I need to speak with like precise physics terms. If you struck the keyboard more quickly with more speed, then the string would inevitably snap. And in, in contemporary pianos, strings only snap based on not even how hard you hit them, but because they're either worn out or environmental reasons or something like that. But I mean, like you can, you can hit a grand piano in today's time as hard as you want. And if the strings are healthy and the piano is well-maintained, you're not going to break anything. So it, it's, I, I don't know public thinks that it's cool yeah so list you know very theatrical got the keyboard moved around a lot uh muttered to himself thalberg sat extremely still at the keyboard and tried to move as little as possible he said that he practiced doing this by smoking like a really really long turkish pipe and not dropping any tobacco so yeah i mean I guess that's one way to do it. And he also seemed to be like a huge, huge perfectionist. Like he had many fans that followed him around while he was touring, listening to every single concert. And a lot of them wrote personally, like, I'm just waiting for the day that Thalberg misses one note, but it's never going to happen because he never does. And and he seemed to be an extremely diligent um, uh, practicer. 
and was also somebody who at at the time this was seen as odd he was somebody that incorporated other composers into his active repertoire his active concertizing repertoire uh when he went over to the united states uh thalberg earned around 500 dollars per concert in addition to a guaranteed sum of ten thousand dollars a month which you can even compare that to like Anton Rubinstein's arrival to the continent, he he only received $200 a concert, and uh, Von Bülow received barely $125. So, I mean, like, adjusted for inflation, that's around $13,000 per concert, which is just ludicrous. But he, he, he played composers that weren't just him. He played... Uh, in his active uh, performing repertoire in the States, he played Prelude and Fugues by Johann Sebastian Bach. He played numerous sonatas by Beethoven, Opus 2, Number 3, Opus 27, Number 2. Uh, he played transcriptions of his concerto, Number 3, 4, and 5, along with, I mean, understandably playing them with orchestras. And he played a great deal of Chopin. He played many mazurkas. He played scherzos. He played the sonata in B-flat minor. He played polonaises he played preludes he played waltzes he played mozart uh especially his rondo in a minor is frequently cited on programs as well as of course his concerto in d minor and he played mendelssohn's songs without words so he did do a lot in bringing over music to the united states that they might not have heard without thalberg choosing to perform it because at that time again composers mainly just played their own pieces and they might throw in, you know, a composition here or there, but then inevitably, even for like Rachmaninoff when they went over or Paderewski when they went over, they played almost exclusively their music because that's what concert going people wanted to hear. Um, why, why did I go on this huge tangent? Why am I talking about his repertoire? I was talking about how he was different in performing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was also that he, he was by all accounts, a big gentleman on the stage. So he had no wild theatrics like flinging open hall doors like list. He would uh, walk out on stage without saying a word, without making eye contact with like specific members of the audience. And then he would be ex entirely expressionless. He would take his bow. He would sit down and he would play again, completely expressionless and without moving at all. Then when he finished playing, he, he stood up, he gave one bow and then he just rapidly left the stage. <laughs> I don't I don't know if it was Robert Schumann or if it was Mendelssohn. I think it was one of those two, but one of those two wrote that in their time at Paris, the only true musician or they're the only quote true artist, unquote, that they encountered was Sigismund Thalberg, which is that's that's some pretty high praise. <laughs> that's some that's some that's some great praise. Um what else do I want to say about him? I don't know. Just listen to more Thalberg. Uh, it is true that, again, I mean, some people find his compositions vapid, but, I mean, they, they contain some of the most astounding piano writing, texturally speaking, that hadn't been produced before and even afterwards were very badly mimicked. I mean, even in the list excerpt that you heard earlier, he doesn't perfectly mimic Thalberg's three-hand technique because in the list transcription, the left hand only hits bass notes and then it's just left waiting for melody notes it doesn't provide any harmonic structure underneath the arpeggios whereas in Thalberg both hands are consistently kept constantly busy so I mean even though Liszt derided Thalberg's ability as a composer he couldn't even replicate the three-hand effect very well so I don't know I guess you can say one more cool thing uh, about the hexameron this is a, a piece that is almost never played especially not in the 21st century which is very sad to me it's a it's a ridiculous piece i think it was commissioned by another princess it might have been the same one even but uh i remembered the first time meeting my current professor 
um, that I'm studying with at the University of Montreal, um, Paul Stewart, amazing. I love him to death. But in our first meeting, we were discussing repertoire, and he asked me to bring a list of repertoire that I had worked on over the past four years uh, during my undergraduate. So I bring him the list, and he looks it over, and he's like, oh, you played the Hexameron. I also played the Hexameron. And I was like, fucking yes! Fucking yeah, you did. Hell yeah, you played it. But it was a it was a piece commissioned by some royal person who invited many of the pianists at the time in Paris, uh, many of this crop of virtuoso pianists in the 19th century. So you had Pixies, you had Hertz, uh, you had I think even Ch Cherny. Did he write a variation? You had Chopin, you had Liszt, you had Thalberg, and they were to each write a variation on a theme from an opera. And then List basically stitched together all the variations in a way that made, uh, I guess, narrative sense. And it was called Hexameron because I guess there were six people who contributed to it. That would be logical, wouldn't it? Uh, but yeah, yeah, you should listen to that. You should listen to Hexameron. And then for Thalberg itself, I cannot highly recommend more the Moses fantasy, the Moise. Is, how do you pronounce it? Moise? Moise? It looks like Moise. Moise? The fantasy on Rosini's Moses, as well as the fantasy on La Sonambula, which is an opera that is, oh my God, so tragically neglected. I also wrote a paper on that during my first year of my master's, um, discussing the relation between the libretto, uh, the text, and the, the actual music, the musical score. I know that sounds like such a general thing, but yeah, it's half an hour. I guess this is when I stopped talking. I, I, that was pretty fun. I'm sweating a little. That was cool. Do I need outro music now? Or do I just like kind of let it? I'll put outro music. I love you guys. I'll see you in two weeks. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. L last thing. If you want to send in questions, I feel I like answering questions. Send them to stupidpianistpodcast at gmail.com that's s-t-u-p-i-d p-i-a-n-i-s-t p-o-d-c-a-s-t at sign g-m-a-i-l period c-o-m uh yeah that'd be fun all right okay i'm seriously gonna go now i have so much shit to practice